Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Amen. All right, so uh, Acts chapter 15, of course, we're continuing through the study of the book of Acts. And uh, the book of Acts, it tells the story, um, the incredible story of how God took uh, an ordinary group of people and he turned the world upside down with the gospel uh, using them. And, of course, we know the story in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus, he gathers his apostles and his followers on Mount Mount of Olives, and he gives them the the great commission. He gives them a great command. You're going to be witnesses. You're going to stay in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit, and you'll be witnesses for me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so he gives them the uh, command, the, the task, of getting the gospel to the entire world. And he, he gave this, never before had such an incredible task been given uh, to anyone, but also never had it been given to a less qualified uh, group of people. Uh, the men and the women who were on that mountain, they, they weren't uh, Bible scholars. They weren't uh, theologians. They were, they were fishermen. Uh, they were doctors. They were just regular people who had given up everything to follow Christ. And they faced an impossible task. And they they accomplished it with no training uh, while facing incredible persecution. And they were able to do this because they had at their disposal three incredible tools. And by the way, we have those tools available to us today as well. As believers, we have uh, those tools available to us. They had, of course, they had the Holy Spirit living inside of them. They were were filled and led by the Holy Spirit. They had access to God the Father through prayer. And they had a an unwavering conviction that Jesus Christ had has risen from the dead. The the truth of the resurrection sustained them uh, through incredible persecution. Whatever they faced Whatever trial they may have gone through, whatever difficulty they were going to face, they were able to face it with confidence because they knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. When they were persecuted by Rome, when they were persecuted by the Jewish uh, religious leaders, when they were beaten, when they were fed to lions, they were able to continue because of the truth of the resurrection. Because knowing that Jesus had risen from the dead, knowing that Jesus had conquered death, hell, and the grave gave them the confidence that with his power in them, they could overcome anything they face. And so the book of Acts, it shows a group of believers who are filled with the Spirit, who are faithful in prayer, and who were confident of the resurrection and how they were able to spread the gospel. And along the way, uh, Luke, the, the author of the book of Acts, uh, he tells us some stories about things that happened to the church that we can learn from today. So by Acts chapter 15, the the gospel, the church had spread uh, throughout most of the known world. They'd seen an incredible uh, growth, incredible success. And they, through the years, they begin to form churches a little bit more like we understand them today. Now, the churches in the, the, the first church was nothing like we, we know it today. 
Uh, they didn't meet in buildings. They didn't meet on Sundays. They met, the Bible says, every day in the house to house, in the marketplaces. They just, wherever they were, they worship and they spread the gospel. By this time, churches, uh, little small groups of believers have begun to form and started to look a little bit like we think church looks like today. Uh, they begin to form churches and local groups and they gather together. And then in Acts chapter 15, uh, the church begins to have some problems. Now, problems were not uncommon for this group of believers. They, they'd faced persecution, they'd faced troubles and trials ever since Jesus had ascended to heaven. Um, so problems weren't uncommon for them, but these are a unique set of problems. See, the problems that they're facing now in Acts chapter 15, they're not from outside uh, persecution. They're not from attacks of Satan. They are from disagreements inside the church. And usually when people are, are preaching through the book of Acts, they, they tend to skip Acts chapter 15 because, to be honest with you, it's a, it's a little dull. It's a, it's a little boring. It is what we know as the, the Council of Jerusalem. And what happened during the Council of Jerusalem is because of these, these uh, problems arising in the church, these disagreements between Jew and Gentile believers, that uh, the apostles come together in Jerusalem to make some vital decisions that are really going to determine how the church uh, acts uh, throughout the, the rest of the, the history of the church. Um, and so the main issue that they deal with at the Council of Jerusalem was the conversion of Gentile believers. Um, Gentiles had begun to be saved throughout the area, and there was a lot of debate between the Jewish believers. Uh, and I remember during this time, a lot of Pharisees and Sadducees, who people who had persecuted Christ, people who were really involved in the crucifixion of Jesus and in the persecution of the church at the outset, they've been converted. Uh, they've turned to Christ now, and so they are now in the church. And so they are beginning to teach that if a Gentile uh, wants to be saved, or if a Gentile is to be saved, then they have to observe the Old Testament law. Specifically, they had to under they had to observe the law of uh, circumcision. Um, now it answers a lot more than than that, and it gets into a lot of things that really apply to us today. Um, it talks about some things that. Normally, we as believers, especially uh, today, we don't like talking about because it makes us uncomfortable. Uh, for instance, what role should politics play in the church? Um, how do we handle gray areas um, in the church, like uh, drinking or smoking or the legalization of marijuana? How do we how do we handle these things as believers? And how do we handle these things as a church? body. Uh, what do you do if a, uh, a new believer cusses in church? What do you do with uh, you know, personal conviction differences in the church? And the book, Acts chapter 15 deals with these things. So look at Acts chapter 15. We're going to start in verse number one. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, uh, the first believers were Jewish believers. These were men and women 
who had been converted out of Judaism. And again, a lot of these people who are being saved now were very religious Jews. They were Pharisees and Sadducees, and so they uh, were very uh, adamant and very proud about the fact that they obeyed all the Old Testament law. And so they'd been these Jews, these Jewish believers, had been raised under the Old Testament law. And a very important aspect of the Old Testament law was circumcision. Circumcision was given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15, and it was a, a sign between God and the Jewish people that they belonged to God. And so Jewish believers were, were teaching that if you were really going to call yourself a child of God, or if you were going, if you to, to in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised first. Look at verse number two. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. Now Paul. Uh, he's in the middle of his first missionary journey, and he is he is seeing people saved. He is getting churches started. Uh, he is getting it done for God. But this this issue is is so important. It is so divisive that he leaves the work he's doing to walk to Jerusalem to kind of help help sort out this problem. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a very religious. Jew who had been converted. So they really want to know his aspect, his opinion on this matter. Then let's look, look at verse number three. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phinees and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it is needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, you know how, uh, how, to, how that a good while ago God made choice among, you, among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe in God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he had did to us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why tempt you God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? So Peter, he stands up to uh, defend these Gentile believers and really to to uh Correct the Pharisee converts because they are con they have been saved, but remember their background very religious, very proud of their religion, and so they kind of are stepping back into that that thing. And so he's correcting these uh, Pharisees who were very proud of their religion that they saw themselves as instruments of God before salvation. And so after they're saved, they they begin to bring some of this pride. Uh, with them. And, and Peter reminds them that the law was never given for them to show their holiness or to show their righteousness or to earn righteousness. It was given to show them that they could never, in their own strength and their own ability, they could never earn 
the righteousness of God, that they were they themselves were unable to obey the law. So why would they be requiring these Gentile converts who they they didn't grow up with the with the Jewish law? They didn't grow up under Jewish tradition, so they they have no idea what's going on. So why would they require them to obey the law when the the Pharisees who grew up in the Jewish religion had had struggled obeying it anyway? You know there were there were six hundred and thirteen Jewish laws. Circumcision was just just one of them. So why are they? Why are they focused on on this one? You know, there were there were laws regarding everything. Uh, there were laws about how far you could walk on the Sabbath day. There were laws about what you could and could not eat, what you could and could not plant, when you could and could not plant things, what you could and could not wear. You know, you couldn't wear certain types uh, of fabric. So. There were so many laws that no one was able to keep them all. And that was the point. You know, when Jesus said he has fulfilled the law, he didn't mean he, he, he means that he, he is the only person, the only uh, entity who could ever completely obey the law. He completely fulfilled the law, but nobody else could. No religious leader, no Pharisee could ever completely obey the law. Uh, and that was the point, to show them their need of a Savior. And if these people who were, who were born Jews, who were taught the law from, from birth, if they couldn't keep the law, why would they expect the Gentiles to bear that burden now? And that's, that's Peter's point. Peter's point is you couldn't obey the law, so why are we going to make them obey the law? Then look at verse number 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. So, Peter says, look, none of these, none of these things uh, that you are trying to put on them, these uh, dietary laws, these, these law of circumcision, none of those things were ever meant to save you. Only faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus saves. Nothing else saves. It's not faith in him and your circumcision. It's not faith in him and baptism or faith in him and anything else. It is faith in the finished work of Jesus alone, not in what they did as Jewish uh, followers, followers of Judaism, not as what they did as, as uh, uh, Jewish believers, but what Jesus did for them on the cross, what he did through the death, burial, and resurrection. Then look at verse number 12. <clears throat> then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. So now Paul and Barnabas stand up, and they, they tell about how they have seen uh, these Gentiles being saved and how they've seen God work in their lives, how they've seen God use them. And so they give a great testimony about how God has used them to see so many Gentiles uh, come to Christ. Then look at verse number 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Now, James here, uh, this is the, the half-brother of Jesus. Um, and he, he, which it always amazes me, uh, James was not a believer of Christ being the Messiah until after Jesus had risen from the dead. Uh, but he, once he saw Jesus risen from the dead, he became a, a passionate uh, believer. Uh, he is also at this point. He is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He is a so he is a leader in the church that has a a lot of a lot of weight to his words. He is 
very well respected, uh, very well thought of. So James stands up and said, all right, I've, I've heard from the Pharisees. I've heard from Peter. I've heard from Paul and Barnabas. Now it's time for me to give my decision. He gives a, a lengthy explanation as to why he is deciding what he is deciding. And look, we, we know now that he decided this because of inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God told him to say these things. So this is directly from God. But he finishes up and he gives a, a great reason in verse 19. We're not going to read the whole thing, but look at verse number 19. After he gives this explanation why I'm saying what I'm saying, here's his decision. Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turning to God. What does that mean? Here's a translation. Let's not make it hard for people who are seeking Jesus to find him. That should be the motto of every church. That should be the motto of every believer. Don't make getting saved hard for people because it's not. Salvation is, is easy. Jesus did all the work. All we have to do is accept his gift of salvation and accept his gift of dying in our place. And that should be our goal, to not make someone coming off the street who, who has no knowledge of God uh, make them think that becoming a believer is, is unattainable. Uh, that following God is, is too difficult. You know, I don't want to make it, in our church, I don't want to make it difficult for other races to find God at our church because we're not multicultural enough. Uh, I don't want to make it hard for those who are, who are honestly, and look, I'm going to say some things now that are going to, some of y'all are going to disagree with, and that's fine. Uh, we can disagree, uh, but mine's based on Scripture. I don't want to make it hard for those who are struggling with same-sex attraction to come to Christ because I am stigmatizing their sin over my sin. Is it sin? Yeah. The Bible speaks very clearly about it. There's no doubt that a... But look, here's the thing. Same-sex attraction is not sin. Acting on it is. That's the, that's the key you got to remember there. But when I get up and blast the LGBT community and talk about how they're sinners and how they're wicked and ignore the sin in my heart, that just tells them that they can't find the love of God at our church. And I want them to be feel comfortable coming in, hearing the gospel, accepting Christ as their Savior, and then us working with them and allowing the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to change their mind, to change them from the inside out. So we gotta make it, we gotta stop making it hard for people who are seeking God to find God. And look, we gotta stop saying other people's sin is worse than my sin. Look, my pride is just as wicked and vile and disgusting as anybody else's sin. So we, we need to get off this, oh well my sin is not as bad. No, all sin held hung Jesus on the cross. And so stop making it hard for people to get to church. I don't want to make it hard for Democrats to come to God or Republicans to come to God because I spend all my time preaching about secondary political issues that don't matter to the gospel. And I'm going to talk about some of them in a minute. And so don't, don't get all upset at me yet. Don't, don't take off yet. We've still got some of y'all here. But I don't want to make it hard for people who are... And look, I just recently had a demographic study uh, of our area done, and most of you would probably be shocked to, to, to know 
that 56% of people in our area identify as uh, middle of the road, independent. Not Republican, not Democrat, middle of the road. So, but, so if I get on and I start preaching about political issues and talking about political issues, that's just going to turn people who disagree with me politically off from finding God at our church. And that's not my goal. Now, some of the political issues that we have are based in Scripture. And we need to address them. But we do it in a way where we can do it in love and with grace. And, you know, honestly, some of the things that, we, that are biblical issues are not salvation issues. They're issues that we can allow the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to change someone uh, after salvation. So uh, they'll make it hard for people to come to church. Um, you know, we have the message of, of life and death. And no secondary message should get in the way of us giving the gospel to anybody. Now look at verse number 20. <clears throat> Again, you're just joining us. We're in Acts chapter 15, verse number 20. <clears throat> uh, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. Now, this seems like a random list. Uh, again, James says, look, uh, I've heard the arguments. Uh, salvation's for everybody. We are not going to make it hard for people seeking God to find God. But when they do find God, we're simply going to tell them that you know they need to abstain from idols, from fornication, from things strangled, and from blood. Seems like a, a very uh, kind of random list. You know, don't mess with idols. That's a good, that's a good rule of thumb. Uh, and again, idols in this time, uh, were very prevalent. Idols in our time are very prevalent. You know, we, we don't have the same idols they had. Excuse me a second. We don't have the same idols that they had, uh, but we do have our own idols. We have our entertainment or ourselves, and we, we have our money, our health. We have idols. And so James says, you know, once you are saved, once you are a child of God, abstain from idols. Abstain from, from fornication. You don't practice sexual immorality. Those are great truths that we need to obey. But then he says, uh, don't strangle things and don't drink blood. That, now, again, I agree we should not be strangling things and we should not be eating blood, but that just seems kind of weird to throw in there. Well, here's the thing. Um, idols and sexual immorality were very common in the pagan world at the time. And again, they're very common now. Idols and sexual immorality are rampant in our culture. Uh, extramarital sex well, was common. Uh, this was not a, an uncommon thing for men to have several uh, mistresses or to go to prostitutes, even prostitutes at the temple. And so sexual immorality was just rampant in this culture. And so James is saying, um, you know, the moral laws of God don't change. Because remember, this discussion in Acts chapter 15, it's about the law of God and the Old Testament law. If you are saved or if you want to get saved, do you have to go back and obey all the Old Testament law? Do you have to go back and get circumcised? Do you have to go back and, and obey the Passover and go through the, the day of atonement? Do you have to do all those things? And so James is saying, he says at first, he goes, you know, the, 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 the law the ceremonial law doesn't apply to us anymore. 
but the moral laws of God don't change. See, God gave Israel two types of law. He gave them ceremonial law. That's where you have the, the wave offering and the wheat offering and the, the, the heave offering where they would throw stuff up. And that's where the, the uh, not planting certain types of uh, crops together, not eating shellfish, uh, not eating bacon, not eating, you know, the, the, that's where the dietary laws, that's where the clothing laws, that's where all those laws came in. They were ceremonial laws that were meant to show you how holy God is. But then there are moral laws. And we all know the moral laws, you know, it's the Ten Commandments. Don't have any gods before me. Uh, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie. And so God gave two types of laws to Israel, the ceremonial law and the moral law. Uh, God's moral law does not change. We are still under the moral law of God. So that's why a lot of people, um, you know, when you're dealing with issues uh, in the political spectrum, especially, uh, you know, with homosexuality, people are like, oh, well, you, you Christians, you like to pick and choose what laws you obey because, you know, you'll, you'll take in Deuteronomy where it says a man shall not lie with a man is with a woman, and that's an abomination. But then, you know, a couple of chapter verses later when it talks about, you know, not eating shellfish or not wearing polyester, you, you ignore that. And no, we, we don't pick and choose what laws we obey. God said the ceremonial laws don't apply to us anymore, but the moral laws always have and always will. We still have to obey the moral laws of God. And so they, these, and they needed to tell the Gentile believers that no matter what society says is okay, God says we are to be holy because he is holy. And so even as a child of God who's had his sins forgiven, who's been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, who stands before God as righteous as Jesus Christ, I still need to obey the moral laws of God. And here's the thing, as a child of God, I shouldn't have a problem doing that. Following God's laws should not be a, a problem for me as a child of God. And so, you know, always, you know, people who say they're saved but they struggle uh, obeying the laws of God, I always kind of, uh, you know, it's not my place to judge them, but, you know, as a human, I kind of judge them. Uh, but I'm always worried about it. It's like, hey, you know, you, you need to obey these things. And so, no matter what society says is okay, we have to obey God's moral laws. But what about abstaining from things strangled and from blood? Now, he's really, he's literally talking about animals at this point. And again, he's not saying don't strangle animals, though that is a good rule of thumb. Do not strangle animals. But he's talking about animals who have been offered to false idols in sacrifice. And uh, a lot of these, these uh, Gentiles, they would take that meat that had been offered to, a, to an idol and they would, they would take it home and they would eat it. It would be their dinner. I mean, meat was very uh, expensive and kind of scarce. So if they could get cheap uh, meat, they would get it and they would eat it. And so uh, he's talking about, you know, uh, eating meat that's been offered to idols. And here's his point. Uh, what they were doing was offensive to the Jewish believers. So the Jews are being offensive to the Gentiles with their them making them try to make them obey the laws and the Gentiles are being offensive to the Jews by kind of ignoring their cultural uh, preferences and eating this meat that's been offered to idol in front of them and so it was causing fellowship problems in the church there was difficulty in the church because they were having fellowship you know they were struggling in their fellowship and so he's 
He's telling, he told the Jews, don't make it hard for the Gentiles to be saved. He's telling the Gentiles, don't make it hard for Jewish believers to fellowship with you. Uh, don't make it hard for Jewish believers who were, were raised this way uh, to struggle being around you. Be sensitive to cultural differences. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, look, if it offends your brother to eat meat offered to idols, don't eat the meat in front of him. Now, he doesn't say don't eat the meat at all. He just says don't eat the meat in front of him. You know, if, you know, if, if it offends your brother that you are uh, eating a, a meat that was offered to idols, don't invite him over to the barbecue. Uh, don't talk to him about it. You know, just, just keep it to yourself. That's a, a Christian liberty that you have. You can eat the meat if you like the meat, but if it offends somebody else, just kind of keep it to yourself. It's like if, if there's a, uh, you know, a, a brother or sister in Christ who they think it's a sin to go to the movies, don't invite them to the movies with you. Or don't tell them about the movie that you just watched. You know, stop being offensive to other people. So, um, so that, that's what James is saying here. Don't make it hard for believers to come to for unbelievers to come to Christ, and don't make it hard for believers to fellowship with you because of your stance on things. Look at verse number twenty-two. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among them. Now I want you to skip down to verse number twenty-eight. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which you keep yourselves, you shall do well, fare uh, you well. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle. So the Gentiles, uh, they re received this letter from James and from the apostles, basically telling them, look, we're not going to make you uh, get circumcised. I, I know all the men in the church were relieved at that. But, you know, we're not going to make you obey these things. We're not going to put a burden on you that we couldn't carry. Uh, just don't, you know, abstain from idols and fornication and don't offend people and you'll do well. And so they receive this letter and there's a, a huge burden lifted off of them. Now this passage, uh, it shows us several ways that we as a church can drift from the gospel that we need to avoid. Several ways we can drift from being used of God to reach the lost world. And here's the first one. We drift from having a passion for outsiders to trying to pacify insiders. We drift from caring about those outside the church to trying to make those inside the church happy. And every church tends to do this. You know, we, we start and we're, we're focused on those outside the church reaching the lost, reaching the broken and the hurt and the, the addicted and the, 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 the persecuted in our community. And we, we want to reach them and, and get them the gospel. But after a while, we start building a, a core group of believers, a core group of, of, of church members. And we tend to want to start making sure those church members in the church are happy at the expense of reaching those outside the church. And it's easy to start thinking that way. Uh, it's easy to, to get to the point where you want to keep people in the church happy and start neglecting those outside the church because we all have preferences. Look, I want to make sure y'all are happy. I want to do a good job for you. I want to be considered a, a good uh, pastor. 
And, and look, those who are in the church, they're the ones that complain. The people outside the church, that no one who is outside the church has ever come to me and complained about the music we played. It's never happened. No one who is outside the church has ever come to me and complained about uh, how we dress or how we worship. It never happens. Now, people inside the church have complained about a lot of stuff about the things that we do. But those outside the church, they don't complain about the music we play, the songs we sing, the clothes we wear. They don't complain about how we worship. So it's really easy to kind of re-engineer the church to please those who are in the church. And when we do that, we make it hard for those outside of the church. James said, again, don't make it hard for those outside of the church to find God. Don't make it hard for them to be comfortable in the house of the Lord. So we got to ask ourselves, do our preferences, do our traditions, do they make it hard for those who are seeking God, does it make it hard for them to find him at new, new grace? We need to guard against drifting from caring about those outside the church to pacifying those inside the church. Second drift, we drift not only from <coughs> a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders, <clears throat> but we drift from grace to law. Uh, the ones who were calling for the Gentiles to be circumcised, these Pharisees who had been saved and who are calling for these Gentiles to be circumcised, they were saved by putting their faith in Christ alone. But they, they began to drift towards a rule-based relationship with God, and that happens all the time. <coughs> it's very easy for us as believers to drift from grace to law because we like rules. We like uh, lists that we can check off to make us feel uh, like we are spiritual, make us feel like we are, are good Christians. And look, our, li our list is different <coughs> than their list. Circumcision is not a big issue in the church uh, today, but we still have a list. Things that we say, hey, if you're, if you're going to be a good Christian, you have to do these things. If you're going to be a good Christian, you can't, <coughs> you can't do these things. And look, they're never bad things. You know, it's, it's things like read your Bible, do devotions, be faithful to church, be faithful to uh, sharing the Word of God, be faithful to giving to the church. These are all Good things. Hold on a second. <coughs> I'm going to have to hurry up. My battery's done. These are all good things that we, we are told and commanded to do uh, in the Bible and commanded by God. Uh, but they can become a measure of how spiritual we are or how spiritual we think other people are, how we evaluate others. And it can make it hard for those who are seeking God uh, to find Him. You know, people who are seeking God, they're, they're lost. They know that they need something. And when they, when they find that we have a list of rules they have to follow and a list of things they have to do, uh, it, it makes them turn away from God. See, the gospel isn't following a list of rules to please God. It is we are made righteous before God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, he did everything that was necessary for us. And so faith in what he did, not faith in what you can do, is what saves you. You know, his last words on the cross were, it is finished. 
He didn't say, uh, I started it, now you work hard to fix it. No, he says, it's finished. I've done all the work that's necessary. All you have to do is put your faith in him. Now again, yes, after you're saved, there are things that God commands to do. As a Christian, you should read your Bible. You should have a prayer life. You should be faithful to church. You should be faithful to giving your tithes and offerings. You should be faithful to service. But you don't have to do those things to earn salvation or to prove your salvation. And we go to grace to law. We could have these lists and, you know, we're doing it so we feel good, but someone else isn't. So like, uh, maybe they're not really saved. we got to let people grow at their own rate and at their own pace so we can drift from grace to law. And here's the last one. We drift from, transfer, from outside, inside internal transformation to external conformity. Drift from internal transformation to external conformity. This always follows drifting from grace to law. The gospel changes you, but it changes you from the inside out. It changes your heart, which over time changes who you are and how you act and how you love and how you behave. You know, Jesus said the foundation of the law is to love God and love others like you love yourself. He goes, if you obey these two commandments, then everything else is going to fall into place. Everything else comes from that. The core of obedience is love from the heart. And so when we lose our fake focus on the gospel, we replace internal transformation with external conformity to a list of things that we think are right. When that happens, things uh, become law to us, and we start looking at them as how they determine spiritual maturity. Now, again, they have circumcision. We have our own. I'm going to go through a few of them. Do not get mad at me. All right? So they had circumcision. What are some things that we look at for external conformity to prove that you're a believer or to prove that you're a good Christian? Well, what about alcohol? Bible talks a lot about alcohol. It gives a lot of warnings. It speaks about the negative impacts of alcohol. It gives warnings about alcohol. And look, not just scripturally speaking, but we know that alcohol is very dangerous. A New York Times article said that one out of six people who drink alcohol have a serious drinking problem. One in ten kids in the U.S., they grew up in homes with alcohol abuse very prevalent in their home. Over 100,000 people every year die due to alcohol-related deaths. So there are a lot of reasons to avoid it. But just because something's abused doesn't mean we get rid of it completely. You know, money's abused. Do we get rid of that? Sex is abused. Are we going to get rid of that? Words are abused. Are we just going to make sure no one talks ever again? Food is abused. Yeah. There are 100,000 alcohol-related deaths every year. There are 300,000 food-related deaths every year due to obesity and heart disease and diabetes. Are we going to get rid of dessert? No. And while the Bible warns a lot about alcohol, it never gives us a specific thou shalt not. It gives us a lot of warnings, but it also says in Ecclesiastes 9, Go and eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a pleasant heart, for God is already pleased with your deeds. There's a lot of verses that speak about God giving us wine and giving us strong drink as a blessing. So there, there are good arguments on each side. So what do we do? We leave it to the individual conscience. Now, 
we don't make it an issue of salvation, and we don't make it an issue of someone being a good Christian. Now, that does not mean that at the church picnic you can sit down and crack open a beer and chug a lug and say, preacher said it's okay. No, preacher did not say it's okay. Preacher said it's an individual conscience issue. You have to get along with God and decide yourself. But even if you decide it's fine for you, it's offensive to other people. So just like not eating meat, if it's offensive, if you choose to do it, that's between you and the Lord, keep it between you and the Lord. Uh, James tells the Gentiles, don't throw your liberty in the face of Jewish believers that it offends. Uh, what about appearance and, and speech? You know, a lot of Christians are, are taught that as believers, we have to dress a certain way to appear Christian. Some people say that Christians can't have tattoos, and that's fine if you feel that way, but don't make it a law because it's not a law of God. It's not a gospel issue. So don't say, well, if you have a tattoo, you can't be a Christian. Or a Christian is don't get, you can't, if that's your conscience, that's fine. Uh, don't make it a law. Is profanity a sin? You know, Christians have a certain way they should talk. We know that Peter talked a different way to prove he wasn't a follower of Jesus. He cursed and swore. Now, we don't know what he said, but he cursed and swore to prove that he wasn't a Christian. Now, you won't hear me cuss unless you're watching a, a football game with me, maybe. Uh, but I'm not going to judge someone who does. Uh, especially a new believer. Uh, several weeks ago, about a month ago, after a message, I had a guy in the church come up to me and say, that was a D-good message, preacher. Uh, I'm not going to judge him for saying that. Uh, I'm not going to say it myself, but hey, that's what, that's not me. Um, I'm not going to judge someone does. Also, uh, cuss words are cultural. You know, in England, belland is a curse word. You don't know what that means. I know what it means. It's a bad word. But to us, someone calls you a bellin, you don't have any idea what it is. So, you know, uh, you gotta be judge you gotta be careful about how you judge people and their walk with God based on your preferences. What about politics? Uh, look, the Bible needs to shape everything we think about and everything that we believe. But your political position on an issue isn't a law issue. And again, we had the the Roe v. Wade uh, decision was overturned. Uh, this week, and I've seen a lot of people say a lot of things on Facebook about it. Say a lot of things on, on, on internet about it. And look, abortion is a moral issue. Period. But that doesn't mean we we judge or we jump up and down in victory uh, because we won and they lost, and we judge someone who. Had, because again, I don't want to make it hard for a woman who had an abortion in the past to come to church by calling her. You know, saying, "Oh, well, abortion's murder. Anybody that does it's murder." No, I don't want. I don't want to. I don't want to offend them that way. Now, once they come to Christ, once they get saved, we can teach them. Hey, this is what the Bible says about the sanctity of life. It is a moral issue. It's not a salvation issue, and that's the difference. We have to understand what the difference is. Uh, it's not. It isn't an external sign of your faith or your walk with God. And look, you may be right about your beliefs. I know I am right about the the issue of abortion and the sanctity of life. But I'm not going to get up and make it hard for people to come to Christ because of what I say and what I believe. You can make it hard for the unsaved to come to Jesus if you make it an issue for salvation. Those are conversations we need to have, but we don't need to make them the main point. What about smoking? Should a Christian smoke? You know, what does the Bible say about it? Nothing. Now, it does say that your body is a, a temple of the Holy Spirit and you should take care of the temple. And I agree, uh, smoking's stupid. Uh, it's harmful, it's expensive, and it can be very divisive.
but as a, a fat preacher who has a lot of health issues because of the things he's eaten his entire life, I'm not going to harp on someone who smokes. It's like, oh, you all not smoke, it's bad for your health. Let me have another donut. You know, I, I have no room to judge them. I have no room to, to say anything again th about them. External conformity to my beliefs, to my opinions, is not what is important. It is internal transformation from the Holy Spirit, and that's all that matters. You know, these, these three drifts can destroy the movement of a church. It can keep the gospel from moving forward. We cannot drift from having a passion from outsiders to trying to pacify those inside the church. We can't drift from focusing on the grace of God to trying to make laws that people need to obey to either earn or prove their salvation. We can't drift from focusing on internal transformation to external conformity to our rules. You know, chapter 15 is a defining moment in the church's history, and it could have gone wrong. Many churches, they have several similar moments that end up making it hard for those outside the church in the community to get saved. The gospel is the truth that God loves you. No matter who you are, no matter where you're coming from, God loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you, and he made a way for that to happen through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died in your place. He became sin for you so you could become the righteousness of God before him. It's not to change. You know, God doesn't say change and come to me. He says come to me and I'll change you. So what does that mean for us? Follow your own conscience and don't judge others. Don't judge someone's spirituality because they do or say or act in a way that you don't agree with. Follow your conscience, follow the Holy Spirit leading in your life, and don't judge other people. Becoming a believer doesn't mean becoming a Republican. And not all Republicans are Christians. A lot of Democrats are believers, are saved, a lot of independents. So you can't judge and say, oh, well, they're, they believe differently than me on some cultural issue, so therefore they're not saved. Trust God to change you and others. Don't divide believers on your beliefs. If it's not a moral, scriptural issue, don't get hung up on it. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.